Welcome to Bite Size Dental Marketing. Today I have Kyle Francis. Kyle's the founder and president of Professional Transition Services. Kyle, I, I know you went to school with Matt Zolfo. You got your bachelor's in uh, entrepreneurship and sales from Baylor. And then from there, you, uh, you, know, you did some stuff. I don't know exactly what, but I know that in 2007, you started your current company and you guys have sold around 400 practices. And when I kicked the company off in 2014, I barely heard of you. And now it seems like you're everywhere. So, man, I would love to know the story of how you got into dentistry and what led you to today. Well, uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. But I guess first things first, if uh, you know Matt Zolfo, please don't hold that against me, um, first and foremost. But uh, the, uh, I guess the long story short, I, I did go to Baylor. Um, I very much went there because they had an entrepreneurship program. I come from uh, a line of entrepreneurs. I think I'm a fourth generation entrepreneur at this point. And so I um, definitely understood the roller coaster that I was going to be getting on. Uh, coming out of school, I very much thought I wanted to get, wanted to get involved in institutional capital. I'd seen kind of my dad and uncle and, you know, selling different businesses, all that kind of stuff. And I really liked the overall process. So I had an offer on my plate from Goldman Sachs. I very much thought I was going to go that direction. I did a week-long shadow program at their IB division up in Dallas and saw the way they lived life and just wasn't quite what I wanted, you know? So mm -hmm, you know, 100 mm -hmm. hour work weeks, 200 days a year on the, on the road, just wasn't what I wanted out of life. And so the other way of getting involved within that type of world is by specializing in an industry. And so I took a couple hundred interviews out of college. I know that sounds goofy, but I really did. And um, I found this funny little world of dentistry. Mm -hmm. All these little entrepreneurs out there, some of them knew what they were doing, most of them didn't. And I was like, well, shoot, I can help him if nothing else. So uh, Matt Zolfo is the one who got me in. So I, I called him up and uh, in my best Matt Zolfo impression is like, Francis, you got to come up here. This is crazy. And so <laughs> I was like, okay, well, I got to learn it first, right? So I went on board with Sullivan Shine at that point, now Henry Shine, and um, uh, went on board uh, to you know sell uh, high-end equipment, right? So started out with technology, started building offices on West Texas. I've got a baby face. People weren't taking me very seriously. So I started to do a whole bunch of contract work. So I'd do lease renegotiations, buy-sell agreements, associateship placements, really anything I'd get my hands on that people would take me seriously. And I was just doing it as horse trading, right? So that way they, you know, bought their cone beam from me or bought, you know, another <laughs> operatory of equipment, those kind of things. By 2007, I was getting more calls for that than anything else. So I started up a company to specialize in the um, uh, transitions and transaction space. And I guess just no looking back from that point on. I mean, I love the clinical side of dentistry. Uh, so I've, I've worked as a, as, a, as a dental implant rep and then helped build sales teams for dental implant companies across the country. And that's fun, you know, um, but <laughs> man, I love the M&A side of the business. Um, I've, I've owned 25 practices myself. I'm not the best operator in the history of the world though. <laughs> so I, th I think that I've kind of found uh, my niche and it allows uh, me to kind of capitalize on what I knew coming out, which is going to be more of institutional capital type of discussions. And mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of funny about my bio might, might need to be updated. So we just finished our 550th uh, transaction this last month, um, which is kind wow. of fun. And um, kind of scaling up in size overall, you know, vast majority of our transactions are with practices kind of in the, you know, the $2 million to $15 million range in terms of overall revenue. Mm -hmm. We've done a lot larger deals than that as well. But that's probably our bread and butter. Um, and it just so happens that my career coincided with the consolidation of, of this industry, right? Um, so better lucky than good. Uh, quite frankly. And because I had no idea it was coming. I wish I was prescient in that way. I'm not. <laughs> so Agreed. Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, just kind of gr grown the team and love working with doctors at any one time. We're working with, oh, I don't know, you know, 180, 200 different practices across the country. Now, what have you seen 
over the last three to four years as far as the industry shifts, right? I mean, so I'll give you an example for me on the marketing side. We knew the consolidation of private of, of general dentists were coming, but for me, I was caught surprised at the uh, the institutional capital being brought into the guys that focused on all on fours and implants. Mm. You know, from Archpoint to Clark Damon to you know these other guys that have historically been, and that 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 was very surprising to me this year. Um, and in fact, I would argue that I've seen fewer general dentist transactions than I did last year. Now, I have a, a small, you know, microscope into the, the the view, but what are you seeing out there over the last two to three years? Yeah. Uh, okay. So 2019, you know, was a banner year for everybody, right? In in my world, from an M&A perspective, banner year for DSOs. Um, mm -hmm. And 2020 was wonky, you know, but if, if you really kind of take out the four month um, craziness that happened that year. Um, the trajectory kind of started or started back up right where it left off, right? right. And so if you look at it from a multiple standpoint, if you would have asked me in 2019, do I, I think multiples were going to go up from there? I would have said, no way, you're crazy, you know, but they did. Um, and so I would have just been wrong about that. You know, I'm not very good at predicting the future. 2021 outpaced uh, 2019 and 2020 and 2022 outpaced 2021. The uh, And if you look at 23, it's outpacing, you know, 2022, um, both in multiples, size of deals, um, types of deals, deal structure, architecture, all that kind of stuff. Everything has uh, ramped up in total. The interesting part about it is going to be that this is also ramping up in a time that interest rates are going up, right? Right. And so uh, you'd think that, you know, carried cost of capital, all that kind of stuff would end up entering into the discussion at some point or another. Uh, I think the reason that it hasn't quite yet or quite hasn't quite caught up there is going to be because everybody did new debt rounds and new equity partners in 2021 and 2022, which means that they're locked in at a certain cost of capital for quite some time. So we just haven't seen that market come down at all, you know, especially for our bread and butter style deals. So we know that there have been, you know, a few different groups, a few different DSOs that have decided to hold off on the recapitalization events because you know, they're not being able to lever up to, you know, a 14 or 16 times EBITDA, that type of deal. And so they're going out and getting debt, just kind of waiting for that market to, <laughs> you know, um, I guess, uh, rejuvenate itself. And it's only a matter of time until it will, you know, I think a lot of it ended up being because there is uncertainty on where it would stop, right, in terms of how high the interest rates were going to go. And so whenever it's a worry from a bank on saying, hey, we're going to make, you know, this $50 million delayed draw, a, you know, term loan out there. Um, we want to have certainty on what type of money we're going to be getting back for it. And are we going to be under market whenever it's, you know, three years down the road, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think there's become more certainty in that market. So it seems like, you know, the uh, even the larger deals have started to open back up at this point. Uh, to your exact question, you, you asked about general dentistry. Um, look, I think the, the total amount of deals that we end up working on um, mirror uh, the overall market in total. Um, mm -hmm. So if I look at the total amount of GP deals that we do, it's still a vast majority of what we do right. because there's a lot more GPs that are out there, you know, in total. I might say we skew a little bit towards specialty um, and so you'd name the specialty and we can kind of skew that direction a little bit. Um, and the reason being is just because it's easier to grow, a, a, you know, a more substantial practice in total. Whenever you are a specialist, there's just fewer of them, right? So fewer, mm -hmm. less competition, easier to generate revenue, harder to kill, all that kind of uh, stuff. You're also more selling a service, right? You're sure. A general dentist, you're selling the relationship they have with the patient, uh, mm -hmm. a specialist, you're selling, you know, the treatment typically. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
Uh, yeah, but from an from an implant perspective, yeah, I mean, we've definitely seen quite a few deals uh, go through. Um, but I wouldn't say that there is, you know, concentration there at all. I would still say that, you know, a vast majority of deals that are still happening are going to be GP bread and butter practices. There's been some talk of, you know, we'll end up somewhere around 70 to 80 percent consolidated in, you know, X number of years. You know, uh, I definitely want to hear your view on that. And the second question I have is, you know, at, at every sort of chunk of, I'm sure there's these tranches of consolidation that occur where, you know, you're less likely to get that second bite of the apple or the payout, at, you know, at the end. Talk me through the the sort of the timeline you see progressing and those tranches of of, uh, you know, equity, if you will. Yeah. Well, so I guess keep in mind that consolidation is not new, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, this is the thousandth industry that this is occurring in, you know, and so just and it's been occurring since, you know, before you and I were born, right? And uh, if I look at the different types of capital architecture to get you there, the first part typically is going to be, you know, you get a first mover advantage, right? Um, and you know, if you're one of the people who started those groups to start out with, I mean, you can do very, very, very well. Um, however, with the lack of competition there, the it's the style of deal is going to be um, shrunk in total, right? So you only have maybe one or two different types of options. Mm -hmm. So like if you look at, you know, I'll, I'll call one out. So like if you look at Heartland's deals, right? Heartland's deals are very formulaic looking for, you know, the uh, type of practice is going to be a baby boomer, almost definitely in there, right? And they're looking for certainty within their transaction. There's a certain amount of dollars that they're going to be getting day one, a certain amount to make sure that they stay on the hook, right? So it's like they, they don't move to Cabo Clause, right? And um, uh, they did very, very well with that for a long time, you know? And uh, if you end up looking at the types of deals that are out there now, they're just way different, you know? So, I mean, like, if you look at the different types of uh, equity that they can get, um, the different types of monetization events that they can be a, a part of, all those kind of things, it's just way different than it has been in the past. And so there's a there's a whole bunch of articles. There's actually an entire book on the consolidation curve, which is a really interesting book. Um, and uh, nearly all industries kind of go through this cycle in total, right? So... Um, and dentistry, uh, the reason that it took so much longer than the rest of healthcare to get there is going to be because we're just more mom and pop. We're way more segmented um, in total. Mm -hmm. It's a lot easier to put together, you know, really, really large urology or, you know, uh, general surgery practices, you know, under our hospital architecture, those kind of things. Um, and so uh, dental is just, uh, it took longer <laughs> to do it. Mm -hmm. right. um, but if you look at where we are right now, we're probably, you know, best guess is going to be somewhere between 30 and 35% consolidated, something like that. Um, it's taken us you know, roundabouts, you know, 10 years to get to this point um, from a from a speed standpoint, we probably have another, oh, I don't know, seven years left, something like that, um, which means a couple of recap events. And we're kind of cl closing in on, well, we're probably maybe only going to have one recap event, right? So my tune will change once I think that we're only going to be five years out, you know, I don't think we're there yet. And, uh, you know, I think that if you look at uh, the rest of medicine as a precursors, if you end up looking at retail concepts, the, the type of consolidation that we should expect is right around the 70% range. There's a lot of white papers about that as well. So uh, anyway, and it could be just kind of somewhere around there. So I guess whenever I think about it from a doctor's perspective, thing one is, well, you don't need to do a darn thing, right? Because if there's always going to be 30% of practices that are not consolidated, 
there's no necessity to do this, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, I've sold a lot of practices of guys that have owned their practice for 30 years, you know, made $500,000 million a year. And whenever I go to sell their practice, they're just like, okay, well, whatever it ends up selling for, that's great. It's just another line item, right? Because if you've invested your money well over the course of time, you'll do better on that investment because you got the money earlier. Right. But um, right now where we are is just kind of a unique place in dentistry in total where the competition um, is kind of maximized the total dollar value that you can get out of the practice and has also allowed you to invest alongside private equity within those investments, which is typically mm-hmm. a pretty good place to put your money in total. Yeah, yeah. Now, what are you, your views on, you know, today, we, you know, you said, and I, and I agree, the price of that, the multiple that practices are selling for is increasing. You have the student loan debt that dentists are coming out is higher than ever. Mm-hmm. Money is more expensive than ever for you sure. know, most, most people. Yep. What do you see as the trend there as far as the dentist evolution, right? It used to be you'd get out, you'd, you'd associate for a year. You hang your shingle, you start your practice. How do you see that impacting sort of the the dentist side, if you will? Yeah, um, it's kind of an uncomfortable thing to talk about because it's not something that dentists are typically used to. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that we're headed down the same type of path that medicine headed down, right? And if you look at, you know, most uh, medical providers back in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, most of them were mom and pop practices too you know, and um, consolidation came in the 1980s to the to hospital environments, all that kind of stuff. And people became more employees and, and fast, by the way, you know, and uh, if I look at it, there are really great ways of monetizing, you know, your education uh, in, in that type of environment as well, you know, um, and because uh, there's still scarce resources, and that's going to be your two hands and how well you can do with those two hands, you know. So <laughs> I was to say there's going to be plenty of niche concept, niche concepts that'll end up being out there as well, you know, in terms of you know high end cosmetics and uh, you talk about implants, you know, full arch type of stuff. I don't know if those are going to be commoditized, you know. I also think about dentistry is uh, just as much of an art as it is a science. So it's a lot harder to commoditize like, or it's a lot easier to commoditize things like pharmacy, right? Mm -hmm. Or things Mm -hmm. like uh, optometry. So those are much, much easier in total. But it's whenever you're very, very reliant on the acumen of that provider and the services that they can provide and the efficacy of those services, all that kind of stuff, there's a lot of variance that can happen, which means it's hard for, you know, CVS or Walmart to go in and say, okay, these are the services that we're going to offer and we can make it very, very repeatable at every single location, all that kind of stuff, because it's people that are doing it still, you know? <laughs> so I guess, uh, long story short, do I think it's going to be different? Absolutely. You know? And so I think that my biggest role in doing m work at this point is going to be making sure that we don't make the same mistakes that medicine made um, in total, you know, which is kind of uh, segmenting who the relationship is, right? So is it a, is it a patient a relationship with a payer that has the relationship with the uh, doctor? You know, so I, you just want to lose that doctor-patient relationship in, in total. And so uh, my hope is that, you know, the companies that uh, we end up, you know, selling practices to and, uh, you know, doing JVs with, all that kind of stuff, that they end up keeping that in mind, right? Where they can end up having that really, really great relationship patient to provider going forward. Um, Because it can get lost if the wrong group ends up winning. When you have a doctor and, you know, they're they're all mixing models, right? Hmm. How do you put them in the right joint venture or in the right right partner? How how do you determine, you know, because you have in number of buyers and you have this doctor. 
do you, do you, do you guide them? How do you kind of lay out their options to move yeah. forward in, in a joint venture? Yeah, well, so first and foremost, you can't take a shortcut. It's, it's very, very easy in mergers and acquisitions to have your favorite and just kind of put, put them with your favorite, you know, those kind of things. But really what you're doing is you are going to them and saying, I know what's best for you every single time. And you're not going to be living it. I don't live their lives for them afterwards, you know? Mm -hmm. And so what my thought is, is that you run a full process every single time, right? You want to know the total amount of buyers that are going to be out there. And then you start to cull them down, right? So like, let's say we bring... Oh, let's say a $4 million practice in Dallas, Texas out to market. And there's a million dollars in EBITDA. In that case, I'm probably going to have, oh, I don't know, 70 active buyers that can get financed for a deal like that. Right. So that's going to be wow. 70 PE groups. Now it would be very, very easy for me to say, I'm just going to disregard 65 of them and only bring five of them to the table. Right. Um, however, am I doing that seller any um, favors by doing that? No. You just spec it out with every single one of them every single time to see what they have to offer, see if their value proposition has changed at all, see what type of valuation they're going to be giving. You know, is there a different type of concept that they've now unfurled from the last time that you end up specking out one of their deals, all that kind of stuff. And if you end up doing the requisite work on every single one, then you're only bringing the most likely contenders to the place where you introduce buyer and seller together. And you have a much higher likelihood of having a great outcome if they have their choice, mm. right? And if they have a whole bunch of different choices, right? So you've shown them what a joint venture could look like in comparison to a sub DSO, in comparison to an equity role, in comparison to you know a, uh, a startup type of venture, right? They're going to understand what is going to be better for them and who they like, who they trust, and then also who ends up being the best financial partner for them as well. So I guess the key is don't take the shortcut. Yeah, nice. Now, is that the advice you'd give a dentist who's looking to sell patient? Yeah. I mean, so it's kind of funny. <laughs> we, get, we we talk about it kind of like, you know, uh, what treatment before diagnosis is going to be about practice. Right. And so we talk, uh -huh. we use these words and we say like, Hey, look, if we're doing, you know, a practice transition plan, right. So a treatment plan for your business, what is the right way to be thinking about this? You know, what are the different things? So we can see around some corners, right. Because we've had a whole bunch of different transactions and look, I don't bat a thousand. You know, and so like, if I don't, I'm going to learn from it, you know, and then I can get better on the next one as well. So I can give better advice on that next one or the next one. Now, um, whenever I say that, you know, I, I don't have my, fa I do, I have my favorites. I have different ones that I think are really, really good. I think that they're, you know, in it for the right reasons and not in it just about the money and the, the doctor patient relationship needs to be preserved, all those kind of things. Um, but that comes out, right? So you can't hide, you can't hide your stripes. <laughs> Right. You are who you are from a cultural perspective, all that kind of stuff. It's either going to resonate or it's not, you know, and everybody has the choice of being able to make, you know, pretty unique types of decisions. Right. Because if you only have 15 years of a consolidation curve in total, you know, you know, 15 years ago, this doesn't exist. 15 years from now, it won't exist. So make sure that you're doing it with a data driven decision. It's kind of my thought. Mm -hmm. Now, I have found in my business that that's that's the most complicated, I'll say client interaction I have is they'll say, I really want to be high end. I only want high end patients, but they're in a storefront next to the pawn shop and who they want to be and who they are, are wildly out of alignment. And, yeah. and while I agree that really high end dentistry can happen anywhere, there is a perception problem, you know, from a public and, and, you know, and, and getting them to see that 
who they are and who they want to be aren't in alignment is, is, you know, one of the biggest challenges I face. Now, when you sit down and talk to them, and I'm sure they say the same thing, like, I'm, I care about my patients. I treat my staff like family. I, I'm sure that the, the, you've heard the same thing over and over and over and over. How do you get to understand the real core of them? And, and you know, is it, is it wrapped up in the no shortcuts, you know? Yeah, it kind of is. Get- I think part, so look, if you take 45 to 60 days to make a market, which means that you have specced it out with all of those potential buyers, right? Mm-hmm. And then you bring them a slate of candidates. So let's say there's going to be, you know, somewhere between eight and 10 um, that we're typically going to be introducing. Um, then uh, it's at that point, pulling on your comps of what kind of questions they're going to be asking, what types of things are asked of them. And they're learning a lot about themselves and what they want as they go. It's, it's very, very, very common to have people come in with a very defined idea of exactly what they want. And then it changed dramatically going through this process, right? Because once you understand that there's different types of scenarios out there, I'm like, ooh, I've never kind of thought about this before. Yeah. But one of the brokers on our team talks about how that is the most fun thing to, to, to witness, right? It's just like, oh yeah, I didn't know what I didn't know. And now that I know this, it kind of makes my decision a little bit different in total, you know? And yeah. sometimes finances end up winning the day, right? That does happen, you know? Um, but uh, I, I do think that, uh, you know, as they're asked different questions by different groups and they get better about asking those questions to those groups, they find out what they want, maybe a little bit by osmosis. Mm. But again, you can't take the shortcut and get out of it and only introduce them to the one and expect that you're going to have that great result each time. Yeah, I, I think in especially when you're talking about private equity and the deal structure, there's such a finite number of people who deal in that space, Mm. but yet we hear about all the bad stories. Sure. So we, we think the bad stories are the normal stories, but in reality, there's so many good deals that are out there. Um, The bad stories just get, you know, 85% of the press. Yeah. Well, maybe can I, can I tell you a quick story? I would would love to, let's hear it. (laughs) Uh, Early on in my career, um, I was down in, um, West Texas, I sold a couple of practices to a very well-known DSO and it went horribly. Doctors left, they were ticked. Staff left, they were ticked. DSO is mad at me. I put everybody together, you know? And at that point I said, you know what? I'm never doing this again. I'm only going to sell individual to individual sales. And I guess it's just kind of funny the way that never ends up working in a way. What I found is this, I think the DSOs and the private equity groups that back them are actually a reflection of dentistry. I think they're good providers and I think there are bad providers out there. I've dealt with both. Right. I think there are good DSOs and I think there's bad ones out there as well. I've dealt with both. And um, what I do know is this is that, look, if I look at the happiness indicators, you know, on the back end of a deal, we end up getting about the exact same success rate going individual to individual or individual to group. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason for that is everybody's people, (laughs) you know. And so the way that I think you end up having that, you know, uh, happiness go up and success rates, long term success rate go up is going to be by looking at a whole bunch of different types of options. So that way your architecture is more founded, right? So you have the foundation to make that best right. decision, you know? But look, I, it's, it's kind of funny. If you put, uh, I remember talking to some guy about this, where if you, if you put a really, really great clinician with a really terrible DSO, it's a dumpster fire. It's absolutely terrible, you know? <laughs> the opposite is also true. You put a really terrible clinician with a really great DSO equally as bad. You put a bad clinician with a bad DSO, surprisingly enough, kind of works out, you know? Not necessarily what I want, <laughs> but it does kind of work out. Um, but look, if you put a really, really spectacular clinician with a really great financial partner, man, you can be cooking with gas, you know, yeah. because you get to really, really leverage all the economies of scale that you could have never realized on your own. Well, I think if Dennis realized 
you know, the, the dentist to dentist transactions get so much love, but in reality, if you look at the number of failed, uh, associates that are brought in to practices, that is effectively a precursor to how a dentist to dentist relationship would work. And so many of them in poorly and the, the, the associate moves on and they had to, you know, the associate has to go through their emotional journey of, Mm -hmm. of learning. So does the dentist. Yeah. I, so much of it is personality based. Mm-hmm. I think if you're, you know, very much into this is my domain and I, I will be in control, which no one likes to admit, right? We're all, we all, we all over index how easy going we are. I think you yeah. need a, I think you need a pretty free spirit of deal where I think if you're like, I'm so done and I just want to come in and practice dentistry and I don't want to do anything else. I don't want to hire. I don't want to fire. I, I think if you really mean that, I think, you know, there's a potential for some, for some good deals, but yeah, that's, that's well, so and also, I think the, proof, the proof's in the pudding, really. So, I mean, like, if I look at the total amount of deals, we'll do somewhere in like the, oh, I don't know, 120, 130 deals this year, something like that. And uh, of which there isn't a single DSO out there that's won more than 6% of our deals, right? And so my thought is like people really, really reasonable and well-educated and all of these different types of things, people can make decisions for wildly different reasons in total. Oh, man. Choose completely different partners because of it, you know? And so... Uh, often I'll be asked by doctors like, hey, do you, is there that one group that you think I'm going to go with all that kind of stuff? I'm like, look, I have the ideas on it, but you would be shocked at how often I'm wrong on this kind of stuff, you know, mm. because you have to go through your own emotional journey, just like you talked about. They say that as humans, we make emotional decisions and then justify them with logic. Mm. Do you see that on your side as well? Very much so. <laughs> very much so. So <laughs> I remember the very first time I read uh, Blink by Gladwell mm-hmm. and about just how you end up making decisions and how, you know, you're going to end up justifying your original gut reaction with as much data as you have, all that kind of stuff. Whether it was the right decision or the wrong decision. Oh, actually I, I love my favorite quote in the world is Mark Twain. There are three types of lies. There are lies, there are damned lies, and there are statistics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It falls in that, that, that there. Yeah, it does. go ahead. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's funny. We actually, we, we rely on that concept pretty heavily whenever we, let's say we have a doctor that doesn't want to work with the DSO for whatever reason. And they get, there can be good reasons for that. And they really want us to go find them a partner, right? Um, lots of times what they want is they say, okay, we want to have that person be an associate for a year or two years, kind of understand how they are. And it's like, you're going to know everything that you need to know about this person in 30 days. Like you're going to need to, you're going to know everything, you know? And, uh, you know, so if we want to do a 90 day trial period, that's completely fine. But the interesting thing is going to be like, if you look at the success rate of associates, uh, associate chips, I used to do headhunting for that. Um, I stopped doing that in 2008. Thank the Lord, because it only has a 28 to a 20% success rate over a yeah, five year time horizon. Very low, you know? Yeah. And if you look at partnerships in dentistry, it's actually the inverse. It's like 80% of partnerships work out over a 20 year time horizon. And so if you end up looking at that, it's just like, you need to tie the incentives together. So you need to tie the people's mind to their money where they don't just jump ship. Right. Or the other person doesn't just kick them out. They, they need to have a reason to work stuff out. And so we talk about that all the time. We talk about, hey, this is going to be an emotional decision that you're making regardless. I introduced you to five great people. You're going to choose one of them. And you chose them. You don't even know why you chose them, right? You don't, don't know really why. know, you know. But we're going to put all of the incentives aligned to the point where we have the highest rate of success on the back end, you know, because mm-hmm. you can go into paralysis by analysis with these type of things very, very quickly. Yeah, uh- I agree. We, we, so funny. We have a similar concept. When a patient walks in to the practice, they do not know if they're clinically good dentist or not. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I'm going to argue that even you and I being in the field for as long as we are, I would argue we probably don't know a clinically good dentist from a clinically average one. Yep. We do, however, know the confidence that they inspire us, how they make us feel. And then we, 
if someone we have confidence in and we associate with, we immediately attribute, you know, very high clinical success to. And the, yeah, it, but it's an emotional decision. I, I, I couldn't tell you the crown margins and prep and occlusion <laughs> from right. one to another. I yeah. can tell you, if you put a gun to my head and said, who's the best dentist in your, in your, you know, in our network, I could probably name three or four names that I think are accurate, but it's, it's completely emotional. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Gosh. Well, Cal, where do you see the next six to eight months taking the market? Is it, are we going to continue through the growth and I higher mean, multiples so I, and more deals? My thought, oh, sorry about that. I, my thought is like, I would love to be the person on the forefront calling for, you know, oh my gosh, we're about to see this big change, you know, all that kind of mm -hmm, stuff. Mm -hmm, I've just noticed mm -hmm. how wrong I've been in the past whenever I try to do that. And so what I think is this, is that the way that the multiples have all kind of worked themselves out and the way that the deal structures have worked themselves out, the amount of capital that's still on the sidelines, the amount of interest that there is in investing within dentistry at this point as well, because of all that, there's just a lot of tailwinds in total. And um, look, if I look at 2007, which is the last time we were in this type of rate structure from a cost of capital perspective, that was a banner year for M&A firms and a banner year for leveraged buyouts, which is what we're talking about here. That's what consolidation right. is, is leveraged buyouts compounding upon each other. And so I know it can be done at this level, right? And so if it can, it's like, well, who am I to say that like there's this big change coming? All things equal, I have been shocked that there hasn't been any change, but I just haven't seen it hmm. yet. So if I haven't seen it yet, it's hard for me to project that into the future. I think, yeah. you know, there's a lot of tailwinds pushing us towards, you know, continued consolidation. And I don't see that changing. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for your time. I mean, it's 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 been a pleasure, and every time uh, someone from your company's on, I learn I learn a ton more. So this is awesome. <laughs> well, it's my pleasure, and thank you very much for having me. So this is great.